From the USC US China Institute, this is China Life, the podcast sharing the stories of people living and working in China. I'm your host, Craig Steubing. There was a time when the most desirable jobs were to go work for an MNC. So that could be Microsoft, that could be Oracle, that could be P&G, you know, whatever, some of these very well-known names in China. Why? Of course, great pay, but also the chance to learn global management practices and maybe even go to work get transferred to the U.S. And that was seen as kind of the dream. And then along with that, get a Beijing hukou. Buy an apartment, get married, right? And there was enormous pressure to do this. And the young people that had the self confidence and maybe even the orneriness, right, or the rebelliousness,、uh, which would have been a negative, to become entrepreneurs, were few and far between. I mean, there were a couple, right? But then that shifted, you know, as people like Jack Ma, Ma Yun, you know, became these cultural folk heroes. And of course, I think partly this was the government's doing too. Because part of this mass innovation, mass entrepreneurship drive, was the signal to families and students: it's okay, maybe even it's a good thing to be an entrepreneur. Business in China has changed a lot in the last seventy years. Where once private businesses were outlawed by Mao, the economic opening up started by Deng Xiaoping has continued to expand. In 2015, Beijing even issued directives to encourage entrepreneurship. An idea that would have seemed impossible just a few decades ago, which, among other things, allows college students to suspend their degrees to create their own companies. And the changing attitudes towards entrepreneurship has been embraced by Chinese. In 2013, there was an average of just 7,000 new businesses registered every single day in China, but by 2019, that jumped to almost 20,000. That's an increase of 280% more businesses being registered every single day in just six years. Someone who helped with this change is our guest today, Andy Mock, a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, where he looks into technology and its impact on great powers. Andy earned his stripes in Greater China as an investor, entrepreneur, and policy analyst, and started Beijing Tech Hive in 2010. Andy grew up in the United States, mostly in Washington D.C. and New York. He says that his childhood was that of the classic immigrant experience. His parents came to the United States from Hong Kong, finding work as white-collar workers and establishing a comfortable living for their family. It was during his childhood, after devouring science fiction novels and getting one of the very first Apple computers, that he first discovered his love of technology. So, growing up, did your parents talk about? Hong Kong, China, at all? Yes and no. So、um, you know, of course, at the time,、uh, China was a very, very different place. Hong Kong was seen as an island, maybe a beacon of economic、uh, vitality, but also kind of the the high point or of Chinese culture, because again, you know, there was this big. Almost blank space in mainland China, backwards, poor, communist.、Um, so when I decided to and had the chance to go to Hong Kong to work at the time, my parents thought I was crazy. They're like, "Everyone's trying to leave, and you want to go back." So、um, you know that caused a bit of shock and consternation at the time. 
I graduated from University of Maryland with an undergraduate degree in accounting. I worked for a big four accounting firm. I then had the chance to join a uh, real estate private equity group in the U.S. And then through a sort of somewhat fortuitous uh, series of coincidences, I ended up not too long after that in Hong Kong working uh, in the family office of one of the, well, of the, a family that controls one of the largest publicly traded real estate groups in Hong Kong, and they're a, consti- a constituent stock in the Hang Seng Index. And then after that, went back to school, largely because I wanted to have the MBA experience. So, you know, obviously working in private equity, I worked with people that had MBAs, um, and also recognized some of the limitations for myself that going back to school uh, you know, it helped fill in the blanks. Did you have the seed in your mind to then go to China? I did. I did. Okay. Part of my thinking or the motivation was that was, so first, you know, Hong Kong was just astonishing for me. Again, just the energy, the pace of it. And I think the deepest impression it made on me, and again, I think being someone uh, from New York, Uh, I think this is really saying something because for many Americans, there's this saying, if you could make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. So for me, I thought if I can make it in Hong Kong, I can make it anywhere in that Hong Kong seemed like the next level beyond New York, meaning the pace, the competition, the intensity of it was another level higher than New York. So you know, I really wanted a chance to work there and see what it was like. Did you have a plan? I did and I didn't. I mean, kind of, I was doing what generically we would call FA work, so financial advisory, and then just got into the startup scene in Beijing. And, uh, you know, what I noticed was that uh, at the time, this was maybe about 2010, uh, that there was this knowledge gap. So there was tremendous passion for entrepreneurship uh, in Beijing. Uh, and I think in China overall. But there is some basic skills that were missing, in particular uh, product management user experience. So I started and ran for a few years the first weekend startup boot camp uh, in China called Beijing Tech Hive. So how this got started was um, there was something called uh, Startup Weekend that launched in Seattle. And Having participated in it, I thought that it could be adapted to be an experiential education for Chinese entrepreneurs, and that it would address, uh, it would compress the entrepreneurial journey into roughly 48 hours, so from Friday night to Sunday night. So what are these kind of key steps in the entrepreneurial journey? So I think one, having an idea. Second, recruiting the team to help turn your idea into a rea- into reality. Now, whether reality usually the first step is, you know, what we might call an MVP, a minimum viable product, something that you could put out into the wild and see if you get traction. Um, you've got to talk to investors. You've got to compete. So, what I did was I created this weekend where the first thing was that uh, it was pretty highly curated. So I. Focus. I had. I built a small team as well, so it wasn't just me. But we would recruit from three populations: software developers, 
user interface, user experience designers, and product managers. The reason being that if you want to build a successful tech company, obviously you need someone to code, to write both the front end and the back end. You need it to look attractive enough that people will actually use it. And then, of course, to not just be uh, you know, some open source project or you know, whatever, you need a business model. So this is where the product manager comes in. So would recruit from those three disciplines. Um, and we would have between 30 to 40, you know, I wanted to keep it reasonably small. And then you didn't have to have an idea. Um, so everyone would pitch and try to get uh, other people to support their idea. So there was, you know, some, my idea is just so freaking cool. You just have to do it. Or there'd be discussions. Well, your idea and my idea, what if we put it together, you know, with my idea sort of being the container? So, and again, this is a skill that you really have to have if you want to succeed as an entrepreneur. It's the charisma, it's the persuasiveness, right? So building your team and also recruiting. So there's a limited number of developers. So if you need a develop, if you're a UI UX person or you're a product manager and there's a finite number of developers, you've got to go compete for those developers. And again, that's one of the most critical success factors for building a, a high-performing startup. So they'd, they'd have to deal with the recruiting part. And then because I had worked in investing and you know, I knew investors, uh, other investors, I would bring in uh, VCs at different points over the weekend to listen and give them feedback. So this is the iteration phase of, of the entrepreneurial journey, right? Most, most startups don't end up being successful. What made them successful is not what they started with, hence the proverbial pivot, right? So they would have the chance to pivot based on feedback from investors. Um, and of course, through that, they also would get feedback on, you know, is this a fundable idea? And then it would culminate uh, on Sunday night with demo night. So they would show what they built. And the idea was they had to build something. I thought that this was something the market, the, the, the ecosystem would benefit from, that they could really learn what some of these skills were. But also that it was like an on-ramp for entrepreneurship, meaning a lot of these people had day jobs. They were working at China Mobile, they were working at Microsoft, they were working at Dell, whatever, right? Um, that should they quit their jobs and do this? And by experiencing each of these, someone said, you know what, holy crap, <laughs> this is like way more than I bargained for. And that's not a bad outcome, right? Because you can see this. But other people were like, they got the feedback, like, you know what, I met a developer that wants to work with me, I met a couple of investors who said, you know, if I do A, B, C, they will fund me. So it was a catalyst both ways. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool. But I guess the question is, why Beijing? Well, so the question I got uh, many, very often was, why Beijing, not Shanghai? And of course, today, or even maybe three years ago, we could also ask, why not Shenzhen? The key ingredient is people. And... When we look at Beijing, there's something like 40, I believe, key universities. So everyone around the world, I'm sure, has heard of like Tsinghua and Peking University, Beida. But they probably don't realize, you know, there's also Beihang. Anyway, there, there's a slew, literally 40 plus, of these top universities. And every major tech company, whether you're a foreign company like a Microsoft or an Oracle or an IBM or a Chinese tech company like Alibaba, which is headquartered in Hangzhou, uh, 
you have an R&D center in Beijing, partly because that's where most of the talent is, or a, a large concentration, a, a deep pool of talent. But of course, that's where the, the central government is as well. So uh, there are reasons to be there. It was and is a magnet for the best and brightest in China. And increasingly, and even then, uh, it was also a magnet for some of the best and brightest around the world. So going back to 2010, what was that startup energy like? Yes, I think the difference between the first one and Beijing Tech Hives maybe even three, four years later, completely different. So the first one, incredible passion, bursting with enthusiasm for what they wanted to do, but not so clear how they would actually go do it. The people that came were a little fringe, meaning that, you know, my God, who in their right mind would really want to do a startup? In China, there's this shorthand, I guess, to refer to different generations, right? So the people that were the post-60s, the post-70s, I mean, really struggled in their lives, endured very real physical hardships, including the risk of starvation. So for them, economic security was paramount. And that's what they told their kids, right? Then if we fast forward to say, let's say the post 80s. So they grew up in a very, very different environment. So they're telling their kids, be careful, but you know, do what you want. And then you, know, you see uh, you know, kids today that are in their you know, maybe 18, 22, who grew up in a world that you know, beyond the imagination of their grandparents. It was not only prosperous, but in a sense, the world is their oyster. You know, they go on vacation to Thailand, they go shopping in Paris and New York, and they feel the world is theirs. And their parents tell them, go do what makes you happy. Go be a songwriter. Go be a painter. Don't worry about getting a job. And of course, not everyone is like that. But, you know, this is, we can also see the progression, the social economic advance of Chinese society as well. I think that also affects the willingness and the desirability of choosing an entrepreneurial path in China. Do you think a little bit of that rubbed off on you? Do you think you went in to Beijing or even further back to Hong Kong having a certain mindset to what you have now? I think of course it had. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think we're all products of our environment and I've spent you know, major part of my life in uh, China and Hong Kong. How so, do you think? I think I really get the U.S. mindset and ways of doing things. And I think I also get the Chinese way of doing things. The U.S. approach, I think, is let's specialize, let's be as professional as we can, uh, let's really, really do the very best possible job we can with something. And we may be able to call this measure three times, cut once, right? Especially when we think about software development. So let's really, really think through the problem. And then we go to it. Whereas the Chinese approach, and you know, I think maybe this is also changing as the market matures, but it's like, let's just do it and we'll figure it out later. And especially from a tech company perspective, it tends to be, let's throw a bunch of people at this and get something out the door as quickly as possible. And I think 
there's a complex phenomenon that drives this. I mean, a part of it is rational, that in a large untapped market where things have never been done before, the first mover may be the winner, even if they don't have the best product. But I think there are also kind of cultural elements to this as well. I think that this perhaps more risk-taking mentality in China, uh, more willingness uh, to take risk. Uh, whereas I think in the U.S., because it's a mature market, it's fairly competitive in the sense that the waterfront already is built out. That you know, if you're not very focused and find your niche and drive in and expand, it's quite difficult. So do you think during this time at Beijing Tech Hive, I don't know, maybe part of your job, maybe if you didn't even know it was, was kind of bridging these two? Absolutely. Because I think at the time, too, you know, there was the joke that, you know, C to C, uh, consumer to consumer, actually stands for copy to China. And that the knowledge expertise flow was largely one way. Investors, entrepreneurs were all looking, especially at Silicon Valley, to say, what's going on there that we can bring to China? So there was maybe it being in a bridge that way. Now the joke is that if you want to know what Amazon's going to be doing in three years, look at what Alibaba's doing today. And you know, some investors in the U.S. You know, are taking groups of entrepreneurs over to China and say, you know, spend a week here. We're going to take away your U.S. phone. We're going to give you a Chinese phone with WeChat and you know, Alipay and WeChat Wallet and go to it. But I think, yes, I mean, they're clearly, that was, I think, one of the things I was doing. And I think maybe not just bridging cultures or economies, but also disciplines as well. Again, bringing together developers, uh, designers, business people, investors, and media. So you have a 22-year-old son. He's now in Beijing himself. What's that experience like now as a, as a father having your son go basically you know, similar to what you did, right? In some ways, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. I mean, obviously, Beijing's changed a lot since 2010. How has it evolved from when you were there? Yeah, I think there's no comparison. Um, I think the main reason is that the China of 20 years ago is not the China of today. I would say even the China of 10 years ago isn't the same China that it is today in just so many different ways. I mean, we look at infrastructure, you know, 20 years ago, there really wasn't high-speed rail. You know, the subway system in Beijing was very different. Car ownership was very different. The mindset of the people, I think, uh, was very different. So, you know, when I first started spending meaningful amounts of time in Beijing, you know, I was working for a VC firm, everyone hung out at the Starbucks in Guamal because there was nowhere else to go. Now, you know, there's not quite, but, you know, almost a Starbucks, you know, every, you know, certainly kilometer. But, you know, there's coffee shops everywhere. It's a completely different country. And even if you go out to some of the more rural areas, it is so, so different. And, of course, there's still areas that are poverty-stricken. You know, a picture we might have in our head, you know, these poor, struggling peasants, in fact, you know, they've got two-story kind of townhouses, nicely furnished, you know, flat screen TVs. It really is a remarkable uh, development. So I think, 
you know, this way, you know, my experience with my sons, I think, are, is very, very different. So does that make you hopeful for the future that as people go to China, they kind of get to understand it? Or are you still nervous? I would say that I am largely optimistic. And I think the reason is that, you know, we're in a time period where, you know, obviously official relations are at some of a rocky stage. The the U.S.-China relationship is always punctuated by these periods of tension or discomfort. And I think we're in a recalibration phase. And the U.S. worldview, you know, sees itself, one, as this shining city on a hill with this God-given mission, uh, having to make the world in its image. And I think the U.S. is now bumping up against that this is really one from a practical perspective, not possible. Because again, what I think allowed the U.S. to have so much influence was the size of its market. And of course, there were geopolitical factors like the security umbrella it provided Western Europe, that that made many countries, you know, even against their sometimes better judgment, go along with the U.S. And now I think that's gone away. At the same time, China's rise, and you know, China's economy is already 20% larger than the U.S.'s in purchasing power parity terms. I think it's a fairly large majority of countries around the world, China is their biggest trading partner. And that disparity, I think, between the U.S. and China is only going to grow. So I think the U.S., in terms of practicality, to be able to impose or directly influence people's thinking, government's behaviors around the world is diminishing. At the same time, why is China so successful? You know, for many, many years, it was, it's only a matter of time. China has to fail. This is a fluke. And I think now no serious people believe that. That now it raises a big problem. Because I think one of the challenges for the U.S. is that it's a state but not a nation. And of course, I mean, other countries are experiencing some challenge, but, you know, the French have some clear idea that, you know, there's a French nation. There is a German nation. But the U.S. is not entirely clear, you know, what is the U.S. nation. So what holds it together then is this ideology, freedom, democracy, free markets, right? And why? Well, why do we need this? Because it's the best. So now what happens if there is indisputable proof that this value system is in fact not the best? What is that going to do to the U.S.? So I think this is, again, why certain elements of the policymaking establishment, including think tanks, government officials, etc., see China as such a threat. Because if your worldview is that in order for us to feel safe, we have to be the best, not just performance-wise, but our value system has to be shown to be the best. And I think we're already in a world where clearly that's not the case. China Life is a production of the USC-US-China Institute. Ethan Bunzel was our producer for this episode. 
If you haven't yet, subscribe to China Life wherever you listen to podcasts to get every episode downloaded onto your listening device automatically. While you're there, leave us a review. It really helps other people find out about the show. To learn more about the USC US China Institute and browse our vast collection of resources such as historical and contemporary documents, China-related events around the US, author interviews, and seminars for educators, visit our website at china.usc.edu. I'm Craig Steubing, and this is China Life. <laughs>